All right, and welcome. Welcome to this session of the Biblos Network. We, we've got some, what I think is some good stuff for you today. We've received a lot of feedback from, from a lot of you who have texted us. And for those that are interested in texting uh, questions or support or insights to us, you can do that at 919-899-4142. And if it's your first time texting, put Biblos in the, at the top of it, and we'll know what that reference is. We'll know to be able to connect with you that way. It helps us on our end. So 919-899-4142. You can text the Biblos Network, and we will respond to questions, and we'll, we'll talk about some good stuff. So I'm excited about a lot of the things that are transpiring. Uh, we recently had Brother... Jesse Galindo, Dr. Jesse Galindo, who is the pastor of the Spanish work here in Durham and who is a, a leader in the Hispanic community. We got a ton of feedback from you guys on that. There's a lot of amazing Latino brothers and sisters out there that are excited about the, the direction that we're going. So I can't wait to provide great leadership material for the Hispanic community around the world. So I'm, I'm really, I think God's doing some good things there. But one of the things that you have asked uh, about, and so many have asked about it, that I just decided to take the time and share it with you today and just go on record with it and hopefully be a help to somebody. I want to talk to you today about gematria. I want to talk to you about the Hebrew concept of gematria. American people are not that familiar with it, and many of you are, but but also the majority are not. And, and people who study Hebrew and Greek, they, they do know and are aware of the idea of gematria. And some of them make the mistake of dismissing it. They, they don't give it the, the credibility that it deserves. And the truth is you will never understand the ancient mind unless you come to grips with the, with the idea. So I figured I'd take about 30 or 45 minutes here today and dive straight into it because it, it's well worth your time to, to get acquainted with the topic. So what is gematria? It's the idea in Hebrew and Greek that in the Hebrew alphabet and the Greek alphabet, letters have numbers. So in the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter that we would call A and in that alphabet is Aleph, has the number one. It has the same value. So A and one are together in Hebrew, and then two and B and so on. And they correspond to one another. Now, in English, we don't have that. But in those ancient languages, they do, and they call it gematria. It comes from the same root word as geometry, and it has to do with numbers. And whenever you talk about numbers in the Bible, People, they have different reactions to it. The, the most typical reaction is that they're dismissive. They say, yeah, 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 well, you know, we don't have time for hocus pocus. Let's, let's move on to the, the real stuff. And that's a, a typical observation from a, an empirical observationist society. We're Western-educated people. We are, we're not raised with those concepts and those ideas. And so it's easy to dismiss that and to dismiss the idea of shadows and types that is a grave error 
that theologians fall into the trap of dismissing it, and, and they miss a lot of the richness and the texture of the Bible. So we'll talk more about that later too. But And if you want to know more about that, you can look at the Line Upon Line Bible study that we have. You can access it through the Biblos Network, and it's a great tool for winning the lost and increasing your Bible knowledge and understanding. Our first one has had several thousand views, and, and it would I think it would be well worth your time to understand shadows and types too. But gematria <clears throat> is all throughout the Bible. And, you know, people's reaction to it, it ranges from dismissive to just, they just don't know about it. They're not aware of it. They're not taught what it means. And so today, hopefully I can take a little time and I can share with you a little bit about what it means. Now, before I talk about what it does mean, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. It is not numerology. Gematria is not numerology. Numerology is kind of um, a subjective way of using numbers, and, and you can get so deep into numbers that you get the Bible code. When Dr. Jeremy Painter was here with with me, and we talked about that, he referenced that. You can get any number if you do enough addition and subtraction and multiply it by this and divide it by this, and and somehow when it all it's all said and done, you get Hitler, <laughs> or you get Elon Musk, or you get Mussolini, or Ronald Reagan. And there's a lot of people that they saw that Ronald had six letters and Reagan had six letters and they saw six, six and they went, ah, look at there. There's the beginning of six, six, six. (laughs) And so Ronald Reagan was the antichrist until he wasn't. And then, yeah, people have a lot of ideas about it. They put numbers together and there's, you know, the idea of conspiracy theories. And, And so people think that it's worthless and they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And it's a mistake because there's a lot of rich scriptural material that that will really help in your in your quest to understand the Bible. So have you ever wondered why the number seven continually crops up in the Bible? Or the number twelve? Or the number forty? Or the number seventy? And even the number one thousand? Those numbers continually crop up over and over and over. And and people will say, well, you know what? Six is the devil's number because, because of 666, and seven must be God's number. That's God's perfect number. And that's their way of trying to put some kind of significance on, on why it keeps happening. Well, it's a lot bigger than that, a lot broader than that. <clears throat> but we will talk about where they come from. Um, so let's start out with the number seven. You'll find out, and I'll deal with the idea of seven and 12 because those are over and over and over in the Bible. They're repeated over and over. And this is not just in the Bible. This is actually in all reality. Twelves and sevens. Our world is actually built on twelves and sevens. And what I mean by that is the seven days in the week and the 12 hours of the day, the 24 hours of the day, the 12 months of the year, our planets rotate and we measure that time on sevens and twelves, the exact same numbers that are located in the Bible. And God does things for a reason. He does them by 
by um, uh, the concept of ancient wisdom. One place in the Bible called it hidden wisdom. And so instead of looking at it in the terms of our modern uh, scientific em- empirical viewpoint, let's look at it through the eyes of the ancients and let's see what they saw, and, and it'll become a lot more clear. First of all, the reason why seven is repeated over and over and over again, one of the reasons, is because it's in heaven. The Bible says that there are seven lamps that John saw in the book of Revelation, and they are the seven spirits of God that are before his throne. So everything we do on earth is first found in heaven, and and the goal of every Christian should be that God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so every church, that should be the goal. Every man or woman in their marriage and their family, that should be the goal. It should be on earth as it is in heaven. And there are places that that this happened. God told Moses to, to make things according to the pattern that God showed to Moses in the mount. So Moses saw things in heaven. Moses saw similar things to what John saw and what Daniel saw. And when he did, he took the time to write it down. And he saw something in heaven that he then duplicated in the tabernacle. And so that's why you see seven golden candlesticks. Because he saw seven lamps. And it's an amazing idea, but the earthly sanctuary was patterned after the heavenly sanctuary. And Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, it's very clear that the earthly patterns of things was made after what the Bible calls the figures of the true sanctuary, figures of the true. And so there was an original pattern, a blueprint that they pulled this from, and Moses brings it down here to earth. So you see seven candlesticks and you see 12 loaves of bread in the tabernacle. Well, all of that has its roots in Gematria. There's a reason why that happened. So just go through the Bible and look at all the sevens. God creates the world in seven days, according to Genesis. And um, I always, you know, when it comes time to talk about it on camera, I struggle to pull up all the instances, but there's so, so many of them. Joshua, um, he marches around the wall seven times. And of Jericho, the, the boy that is raised from the dead by the prophet, he sneezes seven times. Naaman dips seven times in the Jordan River. I mean, why this arbitrary number? Well, this it's because the pattern is in the heavens. Why does Abraham bring seven lambs to Abimelech when he makes his covenant with him? Um, and you could probably come up with a lot more than I'm coming up with right now. But over and over and over, seven. Why does Jesus, you know, when, when Peter comes to Jesus, why does Peter say, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? And and. Jesus says back to him, I say unto you 70 times 7. Why? Why that number? And there's a big, big reason why. And we'll talk about that. Um, Because it is the seven spirits of God that are before his throne, you'll see this in Isaiah chapter 11, 1, 2, and 3. The Bible says the spirit of the Lord would be upon the servant of the Lord. That's, That's God's spirit upon Jesus Christ. And it would be a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and God would give the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And when you look at that, it's first the spirit of the Lord, the main trunk, and then it's six applications of that spirit of the Lord. And that's seven. So whenever there's the lamp that brings light to darkness, 
it's in that seven-fold configuration that those traits that are in the one Spirit of God, Corinthians teaches that there's one Spirit, but there's many administrations of that one Spirit. Well, that seven, sevenness is found in heaven. And so it carries with it the idea, first of all, a work of the Spirit. It is a sovereign, divine, supernatural work of the Spirit. You can't do it by yourself. God's got to do it. It's by the Spirit of God. And the second thing that it is, is um, it's related to, is completeness. God finishes the earth in seven days, and um, Naaman dips seven times. This is where our Sabbaths come from. You know, in the Old Testament, the concept of the Sabbath was on the seventh day you will rest, because the Lord gave the example of rest. They, they go so far with it in the Bible that Pentecost is built on sevens. There would be seven days of rest. On the seventh day would be a, a Sabbath. And then there would be seven Sabbaths, which is 49 days. And once those 49 days were accomplished, on the 50th day, after um, the Passover lamb was, was sacrificed, seven Sabbaths after that, there would be a rejoicing in the Feast of Pentecost, or what the Jews called Shavat. And that was seven sevens. That's where Penti, the 50, comes from, that 50th day following that. So that was Pentecost. It's also where we get the idea of the Jubilee year, um, that in the se- every seven years the land would rest in Israel. Well, after seven sevens, 49 years, then on the 50th year, all land would return back to the original inheritors. All People would be restored. The promises of God would be given back and and things that people had become indebted for and uh, they would be redeemed in the year of Jubilee. So the whole thing's built on sevens. Pentecost is built on sevens. Jubilee is built on sevens. And so it's the idea of a completed work and it's the idea that it is of the Spirit. And that's why it's in the Bible over and over and over again. Um, So how does that apply? Well, there's actually a concept in the Hebrew world that it's going to sound funny when I say it, but when I say it, it is there. Feel free to look it up. You can look this up in any Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. But the, the word seven is the same word for oath in Hebrew. It means covenant. Seven is the number of covenant. It's a work of the Spirit. It's a completed work, and the idea is that it's finished. It's done. It is accomplished. Just as, as sure as God finished the earth, the heavens and the earth, the heaven and the earth, then it's that sure. And so when Naaman did that, it's a sure work. When the boy sneezed seven times, it's a sure work. Pentecost, not only is it sevens, but uh, it's multiplied sevens. Now, here's a concept for you that is worth your time. This is why Joseph, in his dream, or uh, yeah, as he interprets Pharaoh's dream, he sees seven healthy cows and seven withered cows come up out of the Nile River. He also sees seven healthy ears of corn and seven withered ears of corn that, that overtake them. Same idea, same concept. It's seven sevens. And... It is a, it's a work of the Spirit. It's a completed work. And Joseph says something very interesting to Pharaoh. Go there and read that. When he's talking to Pharaoh, he's interpreting the dream. He says, not only 
is this a dream from God, but the dreams are one, and because God doubled it, it means it will surely come to pass. So the idea of seven and the doubling of the sevens means to God it's a sure thing. And, and doubling things or repeating things in the Bible is the ancient way of underlining or highlighting something to put great emphasis on it. So whenever God would say something twice, it was his way of saying, pay attention. It's actually the verbal equivalent of shouting. So when it says verily, verily, and when he called their names Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, when he called those names twice, God was, that's covenantal language and covenantal dynamics. And so when God brings seven sevens, it's, it's opening the door to the idea of Pentecost, that not only is it a spirit-filled work, not only is it a sure thing, but it's covenants compounding, and it will surely come to pass. So Pharaoh's, the fact that Pharaoh had the dream twice, Joseph said, that means it will surely come to pass. So these are little, little uh, nuggets and gems that you find in the Bible that this is why it was written this way. Well, the whole concept, you see it in the idea of seven, because in the ancient world they had a concept that because the seven also means covenant, the word is Shiva or Shiva. That's the word seven. It's also the word for oath or covenant. And when Abraham brought seven lambs to Abimelech to, to end the strife and to bring peace, they were making a, a, a covenant with one another. He brought seven lambs. And what he was saying was, this is of God. It is a work of the Spirit. And it is done. It is finished. And so they called that place Beersheba, or, and they dug a well. They, they had a well there, and that well was given in covenant there as a, as a token, the well, and it was called the well of the sevens or the well of the oath. This is where Abraham and Abimelech buried the hatchet, signed the paper, put it in writing, however you want to say it in modern vernacular. This was the idea of the sevens, and, and the idea is furthered to the point where those ancient people, when you did that, they called it sevening yourself. I know that sounds weird because we think of seven as a number, and when you seven yourself, you're, you're making it a verb. You're making it an action that you do. But when you entered into covenant, you were sevening yourself. So when God could not swear by anyone greater than himself, so he swore by himself. Uh, he made an oath. He made a covenant. God sevened himself. It is sure. It is finished. It is a work of the Spirit. And it will most surely come to pass. So the well of sevens, Beersheba, all of that. You can look all that up. It is there, and it is why. It, it's why that number is repeated over and over and over again. It's also why um, we forgive 70 times 7. 70 times 7. Why such a strange number? Does that mean that you know after 490 times that you can finally get your revenge on 491? <laughs> that's you know 491. I'm gonna I'm gonna punch him in the nose. Uh, that's that's not what that means. What it means is it's a gematria concept 
that the lifespan of a man or a woman is 70 years. The scripture tells us that, that, that God would limit man's years and that the lifespan of a man would be 70 years and that if by reason of strength he could continue, then he would live to 80 years. But be thankful for the 70 years that you get. And so that's the life of a man or a woman. So when you forgive 70 times 7 in, in, the, in the term gematria terminology, what that means is a lifetime of spirit-filled covenantal forgiveness. It's a way of saying you're going to do this your whole life. You're not going to have a limit to it, but you'll do it over and over and over again. Seventy means the life of a man or a woman. Seven means oath, covenant, and completion, spirit-filled work. And so when God's spirit fills you, he'll give you the power to walk in covenant, walk in his New Testament, and you'll forgive everybody for the rest of your life. That is what 70 times 7 means. And you go on and on and on. You know, he cast seven devils out of Mary Magdalene. Um, seven of unclean animals. Uh, I'm sorry, seven clean animals that were on the ark. Just repeated, repeated over and over and over. Daniel's 70th week. And the fact that it was weeks and three and a half years and three and a half years, those sevens play such a central role in the Bible. And it all boils down to gematria. So that's why you're going to see that over and over again. When, when you get to the book of Revelation, you see a lamb that has seven eyes and he has seven horns. You see seven churches of Asia. You see seven candlesticks because they are on the... Uh, the seven golden candlesticks. That's why Moses built those candlesticks in an earthen form and fashion. And, and in that the lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, that means it's perfect vision and perfect uh, power. The horns represented power. The eyes represented vision. And um, so Jesus had perfect vision and perfect power. That's very unlike the, the people of this world, the judges of this world. Um, we judge imperfectly. We judge like a man. But the Bible says God is not a man that he should lie. And, and he doesn't judge. If you keep reading in Isaiah 11, it says he will not judge after the sight of his eyes. So he's not just judging by what he sees. And you can't pull the wool over his eyes because he has seven eyes and he sees all things. And he has perfect balance and perfect symmetry. So um, when, when the woman that is caught in the very act of adultery is brought to Jesus. They're not just bringing him to a two-eyed judge. They're bringing him to a lamb that has seven eyes and seven horns. So not only does he see it, he sees it as it truly is. And not only does he have power to condemn and judge that, like Moses did, but he has power, perfectly balanced and executed power. He sees all things. And so when that lamb, when that judge from heaven saw that woman and, and, and knew her dire condition. They said, should we kill her? Moses says, kill her. But the lamb who saw so deeply and had perfect balance in his power and authority, he said, let him that is without sin cast the first stone. He stoops over and he writes in the dust. A lot of people wondered what he wrote there. But he stooped over and he wrote in the dust. And when he stands back up, they began at the oldest to the youngest to depart and to leave. He says to the woman, where are your accusers? 
and they were gone. Go thy way and sin no more. Jesus wasn't there like a like a, a partial or biased authority, but Jesus is there as the judge of all heaven and earth, and he saw whatever it was that brought her to that, that crucial point in her life. If they caught her in the very act, where's the guy? How'd you catch him in the act and not get the guy? Why aren't you stoning, why aren't you stoning the, the guy? The Old Testament's very clear that both would be put to death, but they've somehow let the guy go. And, and, and then what about her past? What about her life circumstances? She didn't just get there just any old way, but, but there were circumstances, and he saw those circumstances, and he knew how to apply judgment like heaven would apply judgment. I'm so glad God is a, he's a just God, and he sees things as they really are. God truly sees and he sets his people free. So take heart. You're, 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 you're being judged by the perfect judge of heaven and of earth. Um, now, so that's, that's one perspective on gematria. Now, there is another perspective, and that is uh, another concept here, another number, I should say. That is the number 12. You will see that number over and over and over again in the Bible. 12, 12, 12, 12 patriarchs, the 12, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you have 12 apostles. And God was so serious about it that when Judas commits suicide, they cast lots and they choose Matthias because God wanted to keep that number 12. On the day of Pentecost, um, Peter stood up with the 11. The Bible is very careful to say that, that there was a completion of 12 there. And so what does that mean? What, is, what do the 12s mean? Well, they mean a great deal um, because in heaven, again, our pattern comes from heaven, there's four and 20 elders. And I believe very strongly that the four and 20 elders are the Old Testament patriarchs and the New Testament apostles. And that is why the names of the apostles are in the foundation of heaven and the names of the disciples or the names of the patriarchs are in the gates. There'd be four gates and... Um, and, they'd, and there'd be three names over each one. And so that makes 12. And so we have 12 and 12. And I find it very interesting that the apostles' names are in the foundation and the patriarchs' names are in the gates. Isn't that interesting? Because in the human world, foundations come before gates. You can't build gates without a foundation. But why wouldn't it say that the patriarchs were in the foundation and the apostles were over each gate? Why, why, why aren't the patriarchs in the foundation and the apostles over each gate? Why, why is it backwards? Why are the apostles in the foundation? In time, in chronology, the, the patriarchs came first. They're the Old Testament patriarchs. In time, they came first and the, the apostles came later. But the Bible says that the Apostles are first in the foundation. What that means is Jesus always meant to put his, his New Testament plan into place. And so the Old Testament would be built upon that. The end would be spoken from the beginning rather than the beginning to the end. This is not a chronological thing. Strictly, this is something that was done from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and, and we see that the plan of redemption is the foundation upon which the whole Old and New Testament is built. 
So the disciples are first. The patriarchs are then in the gates. Praise God. And in that they're in the gates, that means that's how you're going to get into the building. So that was the entry point for the Old Testament saints. And then you're standing on the revelation of New Testament. Um, so this is the idea of the twelves. And you see it. You see it repeatedly in the Bible. Um, I'm trying to think of some right now as I, I go through it. Um, when, when you have Elijah facing the false prophets on Mount Carmel, you see one of the first things he does is he asks for um, a bullock, and he's going to sacrifice it. And he takes the 12 stones, and it says, there in, in Kings, it says that each stone was for the tribe of Israel, but one tribe of Israel. So he takes 12 stones, representing that that this is, each tribe is represented here. And that's the first 12. Well, then he then takes 12 buckets of water, and he asks that they be poured over the sacrifice. 12 and 12, 4 and 20. That pattern is seen here. And what that means in metaphor and shadow and type is that the Old Testament 12 and the New Testament 12 would come together and fire would fall. It's an example of Pentecost. And if you want to really get down to it, it's an example of Acts 2.38 because the bullock is death and the water is burial and the fire is Pentecost. So you're going to overcome Jezebel and you're going to overcome the false prophets by the Acts 2.38 message Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And right there it is, twelves, two sets of twelves that brings fire, that overcomes the false prophets, that casts down corrupt governor, governorship and leadership, kingship. So the idea of the twelves is right there. And I find it also very interesting that the second twelve, the twelve buckets of water, are liquid. They are of the spirit. They are movable. They are hard to get a hold of. One would be concrete or stone, rather, and the other would be a liquid application. Um, seeming to say the Old Testament would be physical and the New Testament would be spirit-driven. And so one is stone, one is water, but put them together and fire falls. So that's the idea there. Well, you keep on taking that concept of the twelves and the whole Old Testament opens up. Um, when, when Joshua comes over from the wilderness to Canaan, to the promised land, <clears throat> as they're crossing the river Jordan at Gilgal, he tells the people that I want one man from every tribe, 12 men, to get a stone, and you're going to put those stones in the water as we cross over, there's going to be 12 stones in the water on the, the bed of the river. And if you read it closely, he also commands them to put 12 stones on the bank when they come out. Because the day would come when the children of Israel, there would be a generation that would rise up that never saw the wonders of Egypt being humbled and Moses bringing them out in the Exodus and the wonders of water coming out of the rock and manna falling from heaven and and all the great marvels that God did to deliver the people. And so 
there would be a generation that would rise that did not have this context. And they would ask the question, what meaneth these stones? And that conversation, what meaneth these stones, happened in the context of the Jordan River. And so the beauty of that is God was setting in motion a visible 12 on the bank and an invisible 12 in the river. He was putting two sets of 12 together that would bring you out, that would deliver you, that would set you free, that would bring you into the promised land. And and, and here in the New Testament, it takes two sets of 12. It takes the Old Testament and the New Testament to bring you out and set you free. So what meaneth these stones? Well, what a powerful statement, because I don't think that it's just a bunch of kids asking about 12 rocks that they see, but, but I think everybody needs a revelation of the two 12s. And to my knowledge, that ancient um, group of people saw those, 12, those two sets of 12 when they came into the promised land. And, and we see in the scripture that we know of two other people that saw these sets of 12. Um, the first one was Elijah when he also came to Gilgal and they parted the waters, same place, and they crossed over. I believe that he saw the 12 stones in the riverbed. And I believe he knew of the 12 stones on the bank. He had a revelation of the two sets of 12. Maybe that's why there were 12 stones on Carmel and 12 buckets of water. God was laying in type and shadow the revelation of the Old and New Testament out. And then when Elisha later, um, he parts the water as well. And parting the water is a, is, a, is a euphemism. It's a metaphor for revelation, to reveal the hidden, to show things that are not easily visible to the natural eye. But when the waters part, you see things that you did not see. The liquid parts, the, the um, insubstantial parts, and you see the purpose of God. So he saw that there would be another 12, not just an original 12, and put them both together, and it is the pathway to the promised land. Praise God. So now that opens up a whole idea because I actually believe that's why Naaman was healed. Because you have in Naaman's healing from leprosy, it's a shadow and type of being healed from sin. Naaman's a leper. He is dying, and that leprosy has no way it can be halted except supernaturally. So he goes and dips seven times in the river. But not only does he dip seven times in the river, it's that same river that those 12 stones are in and that the 12 stones are on the bank. This is why you can't go to Syria, to the, the I forget what the names are, Farpar and the, the rivers of Syria, the, the beautiful rivers. Can't go there. These, this river, the Jordan River, is the only one with the sevens and the twelves, the two sets of twelves, which are a picture of heaven. You have there a picture of heaven. You have um, the seven spirits, and you have the four and twenty elders. You also have that in dipping seven times, and 24 stones. You're, you're getting a picture of on earth as it is in heaven, and that was a place where there was a juxtaposition of the sevens and the twelves, and they came together, and Naaman was healed of leprosy. So just like the fire fell with, with um, Elijah, then you have the, the healing of Naaman that is there with those sevens and those twelves. Um, and, and if you want to see the sevens and twelves at Carmel, the Bible says that there were 12 stones and there were seven buckets of water. And then it says when it was over that 
the servant of the prophet went and prayed seven times. And when he prayed seven times on the seventh time, he saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. And Elijah said, get you up for I hear a sound of abundance of rain. So that's all a metaphor for on earth as it is in heaven. So that happened at Carmel. It happened at the Jordan River. And that's just a little glimpse into the world of Gematria and how it coincides. Here's another one, and I'll do this quickly because I'm running out of time. Um, I believe that this same principle is seen in the woman with the issue of blood. Have you ever wondered why the Bible takes pains to say that that Jesus was on his way to heal a little girl. And this little girl, she died. And Jesus is on his way to her house. And it tells you her age. She was 12 years old. What an amazing thing. Isn't it amazing, too, that Jesus is 12 years old when he confounds the priest's and the scribes in the temple. It's amazing. He's operating in that authority and that governorship of the twelves. And that's what twelve twelves represent. It represents authority and governorship. Twelve patriarchs, twelve tribes. It's the, it's the authority of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, so Jesus is twelve. And the little girl, it tells you her age, twelve. What, what an arbitrary little number. Why, where's that come from? Well, it comes from Gematria. Um, because not only is he on his way to heal her and then ultimately raise her from the dead, but a woman stops him on the way, and Jesus detours to the woman. And when he detours to the woman, the Bible tells you that she had an issue of blood for 12 years. You see two sets of 12 here in this little portion of Scripture. What a fascinating idea. And I, I find it very, very amazing that I believe it's in this place, in that same area that the scripture tells us that in that place he cast seven devils out of Mary Magdalene. So sevens and twelves crop up prominently again and again and again. Um, well, what does that mean? Well, I believe that that is a, a metaphor. God uses it to illustrate what he's going to do in his kingdom, and that is that he is on his way to save the younger girl when the older woman stops him. I believe that's a way of saying that God was on his way to save all the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the younger girl, and they're dead in trespasses and sins. She's the, the younger 12. And an older 12 stops him on his way there, meaning Israel is actually a detour to God's final cosmic purpose. God's intent is not just Israel in the flesh, but it is the whole world. He wants to deliver the whole world. So he's going to save the second 12. Um, I'll call it the Gentile 12, or the, the whole world 12. And they're dead in trespasses and sins. He's going to raise them from the dead. But on the way, there's a woman that has an issue of blood for 12 years. She stops him. Virtue flows when she touches the hem of his garment. And she is delivered. I believe that is Israel who has an issue of blood. Now, there's a lot there that I could unpack, but for sake of time, I won't. But but you see two sets of 12. And the reason why I say that's Israel and it is um, the church, uh, the Gentiles and Jews, 
of the New Testament <clears throat> is because it's two sets of 12. And we see this in the Song of Solomon when the Bible uh, takes great pains to talk about the beloved of God. And he's talking initially about God's covenant people, which is Israel. But then towards the end of it, we read the scripture that tells us that we have a little sister and she hath no breasts, meaning she's immature. She's not fully developed yet. And one can almost see the, the eyes of God looking to the future and seeing a younger girl, a covenantal people arising. They are not there yet. They were in their infancy. They were just beginning to grow. But God saw her in the Song of Solomon. And so this girl that Jesus heals is typified in that she's 12 years old as a church age, as a time of redemption, and I should say a New Testament age. And the, the older woman is the Old Testament age, and it's the first 12. The two 12s working together, and Jesus deals with both of them. Now, before you say I'm crazy, and you, and you, you feel that that might be a little out there, consider also when Jesus fed the multitude. He feeds the 5,000. Is it any coincidence that it's five loaves and two fish? It's seven. And is it any coincidence that 12 disciples took up 12 baskets full? Sevens and twelves, ladies and gentlemen. Heaven on earth. See that they'll make it according to the pattern that I showed thee in the mount. It is there. It is in your Bible. That's basically a little snapshot of what Gematria looks like. And when you see that in the Bible, I hope it helps. We could go on. I need to take another session and talk to you about the 144,000 because that is 12 times 12 times 1,000. And so there's people that think that <clears throat> that's going to be some super secret rapture force at the end of time. <laughs> and uh, other people, the Jehovah's Witnesses thought that that meant them. There's only going to be 144,000. Well, that worked fine until they grew past Charles Taz Russell's initial little group. And when they got to 144,001, they had to redo their theology because hyperliteralism destroys the beauty of the scripture. And so it's not a super secret force at the end of time. It is a group of people who would be 12 by 12. And I believe it's God's covenant people. And they are juxtaposed with Old and New Testament, two sets of 12s, it's 144, and that leads us to 1,000. Now, 1,000 is a whole other geometric term that we'll get into, uh, Lord willing. It's more prophetic, eschatological. That's a big fancy word that means prophecy stuff. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, you see that 144 as the multiples of 12. All of that has its roots in geometria. Um, this is why that the foundation of, of the New Jerusalem is going to be 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. And, you know, if that's a hyper, if that's a literal building, which is a hyper literal concept, then it's going to be pretty big and it's going to, it's going to, the height of it's going to stretch all the way above the International Space Station. You're talking about over a mile in the air. So for people that think that's talking about physical measurements, you're missing the point. It is a metaphoric number and, and it means 12 by 12. It means it is in alignment with the Scripture. It's in symmetry with the Old and New Testament. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. And the sevens and twelves are the pattern seen in heaven that are brought to earth and are seen repeatedly in the Scripture.
It's in your days and your months and your weeks and your years. It's what causes the planets to rotate around one another. The very cosmos itself is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Praise God. Heavenly concepts brought to earth. That's a snapshot of Gematria, and I hope that is a help to you and a blessing to you today. God bless you, and I look forward to talking to you next time.